Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is going to be the most difficult text we've reached yet in this letter. It's difficult because it treats a subject that we're not familiar with, and it treats it in a style which is foreign to us. And, um, Hebrew practice teaching, the style is called Midrash, and it's very unlike what you hear most Sunday mornings. So as we go through this text, I'm going to ask you to pay special attention to the words our author gives us, and then we'll try to think through them together. Verse 1, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we've had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on anger in my oath, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. When a long time later, he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also shares from his own work just as God, also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. I told you it was a difficult passage. Bears some rereading and meditating, but let me give you something to go on. Let me start with a story. Tattoo the Basset Hound. Wasn't thinking about going for a run on one particular evening, but when his owner shut his leash in the car door with tattoo still outside the vehicle, he was off and running. Fortunately, the car passed a Uh, Tacoma, Washington police officer almost immediately, and he noticed something dragging behind the vehicle. In his words, the Basset Hound was picking up his feet and putting them down as fast as he could. So the officer pulled the car over and Tattoo was rescued, but not before he reached a speed of 20 to 25 miles per hour and had rolled over several times. I'm just guessing but I suspect that some of you are able to identify with tattoo this morning. Maybe it's the holidays. Maybe it's this way all year long for you. You pick them up and you put them down as fast as you can, and sometimes that's just not fast enough. Is that really the life you want? God promises rest. 
Robert Taylor Brown says that she doesn't make an idol of health, but she's seen a lot of people make an idol of exhaustion. The only time we know we've done enough, she writes, is when we're running on empty and when the ones we love most are the ones we see least. Are you running on empty this morning? God can fill you up. He promises rest. In 2005, a store called Minneapolis opened in the Mall of America. It rents out these little soundproof spots where tired shoppers can take naps for 70 cents a minute. In rooms called Asian Mist, Tropical Isle, Deep Space, the company's website says, escape the pressures of the real world into the pleasures of an ideal one. If you're one of those people who will spend $42 an hour to take a nap, you may be in need of rest. God promises it. But we don't know how to rest. We leave work, but we don't enter rest. And with today's technology, we don't have to. I can remember the first time I saw a guy in a public restroom, it was at the airport, conducting business on his telephone. I was flabbergasted. With smartphones and Androids and tablets, we can work anywhere, anytime. And if we're diligent about it, we can avoid silence and solitude altogether. We don't know how to rest when we aren't at work. Apparently, we don't know how to rest when we're in bed. It's reported that up to 70 million Americans suffer from insomnia. So what do we do about it? We put a television in our bedroom. Between 1975 and 2010, the average number of TV sets per household in the U.S. jumped by 87%. The U.S. is one of the three most sleep-deprived nations in the world. In a recent study conducted for AAA, two out of five drivers reported falling asleep at the wheel. We need rest, and in our text today, we read about rest between chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 11. The word rest is used seven times in its noun form and three times in its verb form. God has promised his people rest. Now let's put a frame around that so we can understand it better. Our text today is the second of five exhortation sections in the letter to the Hebrews. In the first, which comes at the beginning of chapter 2, the author urges people not to drift through neglect and so come into judgment. Here in the second, he urges them not to disobey God through disbelief and so miss out on the rest that God's promised. In chapter 3, you'll remember from last week, our author introduced a quote from Psalm 95. And in that teaching style known as Midrashic, He's been unpacking its meaning for us, and he does that all the way through chapter 4. Of special interest to him in that quote is God's promise on oath that the people who disobeyed him after the exodus would never enter his rest. In that Psalm 95 quote, the word rest signifies successful entry of the Hebrew people into the promised land. The people who disobeyed never saw the promised land. They never entered into their rest. 
Our author pinpoints the reason for that in chapter 3 and verse 19. Unbelief. They didn't enter into their rest because of unbelief. The story of that unbelief is told in the fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, in chapters 12 through 14. There we read of Israel's refugees lately liberated from Egypt, arriving at the border of the land promised to them, but refusing to go in because they doubted God's intentions for them and they doubted his ability to take care of them. When things went south, they changed their minds about that and tried to go in, but then it was too late. That's the story our author had in mind when he began writing chapter 3. Chapter 4 opens up with a conclusion. Since, A, God promised rest to his people, and since, B, they did not enter that rest, then, C, the promise remains unfulfilled. But since, D, God always keeps his promises, then, verse 1, E, the promise of entering his rest still stands. It's never been withdrawn. That contention is critical to our understanding of this passage, so keep it in mind. God offered rest to his people, and that offer is still open to anyone who will take him up on it. It's open to you. Someone might argue, our, our good Bible student might argue, now wait a minute. The promise of rest was made to the generation that left Egypt. It has nothing to do with us. It wasn't a general promise. It was specific. It wasn't ours. It was theirs. See, our author knew that that thought would occur to some of his readers. So he explains down in verse 8, if Joshua, Joshua is the successor of Moses who led Israel into the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. The logic is this. If the promise had been withdrawn when the first generation refused to enter God's rest, or if it had been fulfilled when the second generation went into the promised land, God would not, now this is verse 7 of Hebrews 4, have brought the invitation back up hundreds of years later through the psalmist David. Doing so meant that the offer still stood in David's time and is still on the table now. All this means that our author sees the promise of rest as something much bigger than entry into the promised land. That's clear from his reference to Genesis 2.2, which he quotes in verse 4. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. It's God's rest, which began long before Israel entered the promised land, before Israel was a nation, before any people were on earth. God's rest is what we're invited to share. The door has been opened, verse 10, into God's own rest for you and me. And the invitation to enter it, this is verse 9, is still extended to God's people. The promised land was not that rest, though it was a picture of it. It was a shadow of the good things that are coming. But there's a reality behind the shadow. 
There's a rest available to God's weary people. Jesus himself spoke of it. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But what is this rest? Is it present or is it future? Is it a subjective experience or is it an objective reality? Can we know it in this life or do we wait to find it in the next? Well, before we answer those questions, let's try to think like our author did. In the experience of Israel in the Old Testament, he sees inspired illustrations of our Christian lives. He shared that conviction that the Old Testament speaks to us about our current lives with other biblical writers like the Apostle Paul, who writing about what befell Israel said, these things happened to them as examples for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. To our author, Israel's bondage in Egypt was a picture of our bondage to sin before conversion. Israel's miraculous rescue from slavery in Egypt was a picture of our rescue from slavery to sin when we believed the gospel and turned to God with faith in his son, Jesus. As God rescued Israel from Egypt, he has rescued us, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As the apostle put it, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. After being, you've got to go back with me in your minds to Old Testament now, after being rescued from Egypt and freed from slavery, Israel stood poised on the borders of the promised land, ready to cross the Jordan River and enter their inheritance. Often in our hymns, we sing one fairly often in church here. The Jordan River is a metaphor for physical death. And the promised land is a picture of heaven. But in scripture, the promised land was never intended to be a picture of heaven. The promised land was a place of battles, of victories, of growth, of fruitfulness, The promised land was not a picture of heaven, but life in God's kingdom lived under his authority and rule. Israel could have entered and experienced the rest that God's rule brings, but they were not, chapter 3, verse 19, able to enter because of their unbelief. They did not go in, chapter 4, verse 6, because of their disobedience. And so they wandered for 40 years in a veritable no-man's land where for the most part they avoided battles, but they also missed victories and growth and fruitfulness. Now God was with them, helping them, providing for them, but they didn't enjoy the life they were leading and they missed out on the one that had been promised. That is also an example for us. It's a picture of people who have heard and accepted the good news of Jesus Christ, but have not gone on to live under God's authority and rule. They miss the life God planned for them, which is a different quality of life because they doubt God's intentions and his ability. They find themselves like Israel, wishing they could go back to the life they had before 
enjoy the things they enjoyed in the old days. Their lives are defined by what they do not have rather than what they do. Whenever you find a Christian who can only define his life negatively, I don't do this, I don't have that, I don't hang out with them, and not positively, I have a calling, a purpose, power, joy. You found someone who's stuck in that spiritual no man's land. They're usually very unhappy people. Even their non-Christian friends are happier. Now, I know that's a whole lot of stuff that's hard to process. Let's return to the question I asked a moment ago. Is the rest our author is writing about present today, or is it future? Is it a subjective experience I have, or is it an objective reality? Can we know it in this life, or do we wait to find it in the next? The answer, I think, is yes. It is present, and yes, it is future. We can know it in this life, and yes, we will find it in the next. Our author seems to have both in mind. There is a rest we enter now. Verse 3 says, we who have believed, that's an aorist past tense, enter, present tense, that rest. It is a subjective, present experience of rest which is dependent, notice, on belief. This rest is, to quote Thomas Kelly, a life of unhurried peace and power. It is simple, it is serene, it's amazing, it's triumphant, it's radiant, it takes no time, but it occupies all our time. With this rest, we need not get frantic. He is at the helm. Remember Tattoo the Basset Hound? Picking him up, putting him down as fast as he could? The life of rest is not like that. If you're living Tattoo's life, it's time you enter into rest. This life is a shared life, even in the smallest details, in company with Christ. The Sabbath pointed to this rest, and this rest fulfills the Sabbath. It's a rest that doesn't cease when work starts. A rest that accomplishes more in a day than our bustling anxiety accomplishes in a year. This is the rest to which Jesus invited us when he said, Come to me, you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. It is soul rest. Vacations and sabbaticals, personal days, long weekends provide little refreshment to the person who does not have soul rest. I can't say a great deal about it. There are better guides than me. But I do know something of its reality. I've experienced it. It's the secret of contentment that St. Paul learned. It's the very life that Jesus lived. Those who enter it do not leave their rest when they work or when they play or when they sleep. They only leave it when they stop trusting. This life of rest requires that you let go. Not of responsibility or of jobs or of goals, 
but of yourself. The old life, you on your own, and whether you were serving God or serving self hardly matters. The problem was that it was your life on your own. And that's not how you were designed to operate. That life must go. It must die. It must be replaced by a new shared life of you with Christ, united in everything. It's hard to let go of that old life, to put it to death. We worry. How will things get done? What will people think? How will I find satisfaction? Will God really provide what I want? If I don't take charge and make it happen, we worry when we ought to trust. Trust, which is not a one-time event. You can't say, I did that. But a continuous way of life is the key that allows us to enter into this rest here and now. But there's also a future rest. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Our experience of rest now, as glorious as it is, but foreshadows the rest that is coming. For us who believe in Jesus, the watchword is always further up and further in. There is a glorious rest that awaits us. And the place of his rest, the prophet said, will be glorious. A rest to which heaven calls us when it says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yea, saith the Spirit, they will rest from their labors. The more a person experiences Christ's rest in this life, the more ready he will be to enter into a fuller experience of it at death. If this rest is active, productive, and fruitful in this life, it will be even more so in death. For those who live this rest now, like Thomas Kelly, those folks have no fear of death when it comes. It means only more and richer life. Sadly, many Christians, even many pastors, have no experience of this rest. Their life is, in Kelly's words, an intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. They work, they even work for God, but they do not enter rest. That's a dangerous place to be. Our author understood that and he warns, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The words translated, let us be careful, are very strong and could be translated, be fearful. You should be fearful lest any one of you fall short of this rest. Our author is saying, this is too good to miss. You should be fearful of missing it. He didn't want even one of us to say of this rest, I missed it by that much. I almost had it. The difference between entering that rest now and in the future and missing it is faith. Look at verse 2 now. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard, literally the word of hearing, was of no value to them. It didn't benefit them. There was no profit in it. It did them no good. Because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. 
Literally, the word was not mixed with faith in them. How do you combine the word with faith when you don't have all the ingredients? How do you get faith? It all starts when you hear God speaking to you. His call carries with it the grace you need to believe. That's why our author keeps repeating that line from the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. His voice is powerful. It opens doors that are locked. It reveals vistas that have been unseen. As the psalmist David put it, and it's up on the screen, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. And if you do not harden your heart, when you hear the voice of the Lord, it will set faith afire. But just because you hear the voice of the Lord does not mean you'll know what you're hearing. It takes time to learn his voice just as it takes time to learn anyone's voice. I read about a little girl named Josie Caven who was born profoundly deaf. Her inability to hear isolated her from other children her age. But that all changed during the Christmas season a few years ago when she received a cochlear implant. At the age of 12, she heard clearly for the first time in her life. The first sound she heard was the sound of jingle bells coming from the radio. Josie's hearing was completely restored. A difference of night and day within minutes. But she still faced significant challenges. <clears throat> See, she didn't know what she was hearing. Josie didn't know what an approaching car sounded like. She didn't know that fluorescent lights hum. She didn't even know the sound of her own name. Her hearing was restored, but she had to learn how to use it. So with us, we have to learn to recognize God's voice. And the most effective way to do that is by becoming thoroughly acquainted with it in the scriptures. By taking in the scriptures over and over until you think like that. And when we know it is God speaking, we mustn't simply rush off to do something. That's the mistake many of us make. That's not the way of rest. It's the way of tattoo. When we hear him speaking, our response must be to turn back to him, to rely on him to share his life with us as we obey. His voice never sends us off alone. It always calls us to go with him. Now let's pray. I pray, God, 
that none of us should fall short of entering this rest. I pray that we might experience it in this life, the joy of it, the richness of it, and in the life to come. Lord, give us this rest. Give us humility in which alone is rest. And deliver us from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. And do this in the name of our good Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen.